Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. When a young person commits a crime, even a serious one, should they stay in prison forever or can they have a chance to start a new life? In 2021, Rhode Island's General Assembly passed a law to make that possible. Under what's called Mario's Law, people who committed a crime before they turned 22 may appear before the parole board after they've been in prison for 20 years. So far, only three men have been released from prison under this law. One of them is Keith Nunes. He joins us today to talk about Mario's Law, incarceration, and ways to support Rhode Islanders when they leave prison. That's after this quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with Keith Noons, a student case manager for the Reentry Campus Program. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. You're the student case manager for the Reentry Campus Program. Tell us about that program. Oh, that program is a wonderful program. Our, our founder and executive director, James Montero, is a man that comes from inner city. Um, he had his own experiences with the criminal justice system. He was incarcerated. And when he was incarcerated, he was pursuing his education. I think it would surprise people that it's more common than they would expect that people in that type of situation are serious about turning their life around and serious about making good use of the time and trying to gain an education. So our executive director, James Montero, he was in this position. And when he came home, he wanted to finish what he started. And he realized the obstacles that are there for somebody formerly incarcerated getting out at a certain age trying to balance all the elements that are included in getting your life back together. And he set out to be a help to anybody in that position, to gain an education while incarcerated and to finish what they started when they came home. I remember uh, listening to Generation Rising, the Rhode Island PBS program with Dr. Kiera Butler, and you were talking to her about how a high percentage of those who are incarcerated want to pursue education, but a lower percentage, a much lower percentage, actually do. Tell me about why that is. Inside a prison, the staff has to be concerned about security. So because of that, there's limited space. 
you might have um, the medium security building in the Rhode Island Department of Corrections, I think holds uh, 1,100, 1,150 total, something around there. And you have an education building with maybe 10, 15 classrooms, some of which are already occupied for certain things. So you have a certain amount of classrooms available on a given day or night and with an occupancy limit of about 20 or something like that. And I think it's even less now because of COVID protocols. You have that limitation, and what Reentry Campus Program is in the process of doing and striving to do is to overcome that limitation. And the way we're doing that is we're putting what they call DSST or Dante courses on tablets so that inmates will be able to have the tablet in the cell and study for the course right there and bypass the limitation of the classroom limit. Let's talk about your personal story. You were sentenced to life in prison after you committed a crime when you were 18. Tell us about that. Yes, sir. Um, I'm a kid that comes from inner city poverty, single parent household. And I don't say that to make any excuses. It's, It's a fairly common thing. And there's plenty of people that have been in that situation that have gone on to be successful and not have any problems with the criminal justice system. So it's no excuse. That being said, It is a scenario or it is a set of circumstances that for many young people, it's hard to navigate through without making the wrong decisions. In your young mind, in my young mind, you're taught that, you know, a man is supposed to be tough. He's supposed to kind of take the world head on. So I made the wrong decisions. I started selling drugs early to try to get money that I didn't have, to try to get clothes that I didn't have. And I ended up outside of a nightclub, intoxicated, got into an altercation with older gentlemen, bigger gentlemen, and I responded in the way that I did. I was sentenced to a life sentence, which was was probably deserved. What was your state of mind at that time? Wow. I mean, any kid in that situation is, is, is scared to some degree. You're nervous. You think it's over. It's, it's kind of tough to see past that. For some reason, I definitely never completely lost hope. I knew what the sentence meant. I knew that I was eligible to go up for parole at a certain time. I would be a certain age. Um, And even though it was very far away, I tried to look at the bigger picture and say, okay, you know, it's possible that I could be home and trying to get a second chance at life by the time I'm in my early 40s. I set out very early to try to make the best of that. I set out to to try to educate myself and to try to grow in every way I could. And I tried to stay consistent. I think I stayed pretty consistent with that throughout the incarceration. Obviously, there's different challenging moments <laughs> in a maximum security prison. You were at the ACI? Yes, sir. And what, yeah, did did you take advantage of some of the educational programs? Like, Absolutely. What was available to you? The only thing that was available in the beginning, um, the Community College of Rhode Island was in the prison system. But in the late 90s, early 2000s, the only way that it was available was through a telecourse. Hmm. So the way that worked is that, you know, you had maximum security is single cells, individual cells, one-man cells. They have... TVs that you could have in a cell. You could plug the TV into the wall, get the basic channels. And then they had a television with a VCR in like the control center in the back 
And when they put something in the VCR there, they could announce it on the PA system and you could turn to a certain channel. It was channel three back then. And you could watch whatever's on the VCR. So they would play telecourses. They would play videotaped lectures on the telecourse. So that was how CCRI was available in the beginning. As time went on, uh, CCRI began to have a stronger presence in the prison system. At some point, they allowed professors to come in and teach courses in the education building of the prison. There was a CCRI coordinator by the name of Will Jackson. Phenomenal, phenomenal guy. He believed in education. He believed in second chances, you know, and he fought hard for the guys in that environment to get the most access possible. And as time went on, it did, you know, before you know it, there would be five, six, seven courses per semester being offered. Um, now, that didn't mean that a particular inmate could take all the courses and go full time. The amount of courses, it still had the limit of 20, person, 20 people per classroom. And it was so that more people could, could do coursework, you know? Right, right. So you would usually only be limited to the one class you were doing. But again, Will Jackson was, was such a great guy. He would quickly identify those students who were very serious and very capable of doing the work. And he would allow you to take, like me, he, I hit it off with him right away. He seen I was serious. I was focused. So I was taking two courses at a time, a couple times, three, when I got closer to finish. How long did you serve and how old are you now? I served 23 years before Mario's law was passed on the ACLU, took the case of me and two other gentlemen and got us out. But I was close to my parole date anyway. Um, so I did 23 years total to the to the month, basically, um, and I'm 41 years old right now. And so you mentioned Mario's Law. It's the youthful offender statute, right? Tell us about that. Correct. Well, Mario's Law is rightly named Mario's Law. Yeah, who's Mario? Um, yeah, Mario Montero is another kid about my age, well, guy now, <laughs> but he's about my age, maybe a year or two younger, from the same city, from Providence, from the inner city of Providence. I think he was involved in, in gang culture at a young age, I'm pretty sure. But same thing, you know, one thing leads to another. You're trying to be a man in that environment according to whatever definition you've adopted, and that usually comes with being able to defend yourself physically. So he received, I believe he was one of the first individuals that received a double life sentence. So what does the law do? It says that if you were convicted before you were 22, right, then you are eligible for parole within 20 years, is that correct? Correct, correct. So you, it's not guaranteed that you will be paroled. Correct. It's just you're given the opportunity exactly. to have parole. Was he released? No, no. Why not? I believe he had to go up for parole in December. So we, so the ACLU took the case and used me and two other gentlemen as the face and Mario hadn't seen parole. His parole date wasn't there yet. So the law passed allowing him to see parole at the 20-year mark as opposed to whatever it would have been with the double life, which I think was 30. When did you first hear about Mario's law? Um, while it was still in the process of going through the legislature, actually. I mean, I have a personal relationship with Mario. I've known him for years. We've always got along and, and had a good relationship. I was actually 
a couple cells down from Mario. So Mario was always talking to me on a regular basis. We were talking on a daily basis about what was going on, kind of updated to the minute, actually, to be honest. As soon as the law passed, we knew. And then at that point, it was only a question of when we would try to take some type of action. When the law passed, was the Department of Corrections going to just implement it themselves? But I think there was some discrepancy there. I think the argument on their behalf was that the way the law was worded in, it, in its original format was somewhat unclear as to what exactly it meant or who exactly it applied to. Yeah, they were saying that any offense could mean only one. And because there were concurrent exactly. penalties exactly. that didn't apply to all of them. And the ACLU argued that any means all. Exactly. And that's exactly what the nature of it was because guys were receiving consecutive sentences. Right. And the way that was going was that you could put the sentences together for parole purposes. And there was debate there whether or not that was legal or illegal to put the sentences together. So that's all still being appealed and decided in court? Correct. When did you find out that it w- you would be released? I found out from a phone call to the lawyer. I believe the law passed in July of 2021, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And I believe we filed action in January of 2022. And I came home June. Tell us about that moment when you finally get out. It's surreal. And it's... Uh, it's so many different emotions at once that it kind of just freezes you. <laughs> you don't, you know, it's so much emotion at once you don't know what to do. Um, obviously, it was a very happy moment, but for me, someone like me, it was a very sober moment. You know, I felt the weight of it in a lot of different ways. When you're given a life sentence plus another sentence at 18 years old, a life sentence means that they never have to release you. So there's life with parole and there's life without parole. I received a life with parole sentence, so I knew it was always possible that I was going to be eligible to be considered, but it's still a sentence where they never have to let you go. So making it home on that type of sentence is... It's overwhelming in a positive way, but you also feel the gravity of it. You also feel the weight of, okay, I'm here and I have a lot to prove now. I kind of had the mind frame of, I don't really have time to celebrate right now. I have things to do. I'll celebrate later, five years down the line when I've succeeded and when I've proven, you know, that I deserve to be here, you know? Right, right. Is it true you could possibly be sent back to prison? Correct. I believe the case is still being appealed by oh. the state, and we're still waiting that decision. And we're how still, do you feel about that? Um, I mean, I don't feel good about it. I believe that I've been home about seven months. I came home in June, and I have been nonstop busy doing everything that I should be doing. I mean, I'm working two, three jobs. I'm, I'm going to school full time. And when I'm not doing that, I'm doing things like this because I believe that it's important to get certain information out there. I believe if I have any information to contribute to a good conversation about how we as a society can make some things better for some people, that I'm obligated to that too. If the case was to be decided the other way, 
and I was to be brought back to prison, um, I wouldn't be happy. I think that would be a loss. You know, I think it would be frustrating. I think it would be counterproductive to, you know, stop me in the middle of making so much progress and, you know, and discourage me by sending me back in prison. What's the point? Is there a chance Mario will get out? I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. I believe he deserves it. And there's no reason why I should have a chance and he shouldn't. It was his advocacy. It was his work that brought about the law in the first place. So it would be an ironic tragedy of the highest order if the man that did that doesn't get the chance. You know, that's, that would be ridiculous. I can't imagine it. What do you want to do with the rest of your life? I want to serve in whatever way I can. So I, I, I'm a firm believer that all of us as individuals have a certain combination of talents and abilities and, and skills that is unique to us. And I believe that that equips each person to serve in a unique way that no one else can serve. And I believe that is the goal, to serve. I, I believe you could have a more self-centered selfish way of looking at the world. What can I get out of the world? How much can I acquire and obtain from me? Or I believe you could have a view of how can I use my talents and abilities to serve others, to serve my generation. Yeah, what would you tell 18-year-old Keith Noons if you could talk to him right now? Wow. I would tell my 18-year-old self to take his time a little bit. There's not that much of a rush. I would tell him to not be afraid to be himself. You don't have to do what everyone else is doing. You don't have to fit into some definition of what other people say you should be. Be yourself and take your time to find your way. And let me ask you too, if you were in charge, how would you remake Rhode Island's approach to incarceration, especially related to young people? I personally believe that rehabilitation should be more of the focus. And the reason why, I, I'm not saying that punishment, you know, punitive shouldn't be an element. But I think when you just look at the statistics, the majority of individuals that get sent to prison to do a prison term are coming out, are coming back to society. So what do we want to do? Do we want to punish individuals in a way where we tell them that we do not take their circumstances into consideration that got them there in the first place. We don't care. And punish them and send them home more upset and more angry? Or do we want to help remedy the situation? And I think it's just common sense. I think it's just statistics. No matter how you feel about it morally, obviously, people are responsible for what they do. People deserve to be punished for immoral acts, absolutely. I would never claim I didn't deserve to be in prison. I would never claim that. If anything, I beat myself up more than the law ever could, more than the criminal justice system ever could for my mistakes, for my wrongdoings. But people are starting from circumstances that are less than ideal. And in most situations, people that are incarcerated are coming home. So I think it makes much more sense to focus more on the rehabilitation aspect. And I see things moving in that direction. In the ACI, there's, there's plenty of access to education and more access coming. They just reinstated the Pell Grant for incarcerated individuals. So now that that's there, I think there are more colleges or universities that are interested in going into the prison, which will give the incarcerated student more options. Mm -hmm. 
So I think we're headed in that direction. But I would love to explore anything that gets us in the direction of focusing more on the rehabilitative aspect. Keith Nunes, thanks so much for joining us today. It's more than a pleasure. Thank you for having me. To learn more about Keith Nunes and the college reentry program, watch Generation Rising on Rhode Island PBS. This conversation with host Kiara Butler airs on February 10th. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. And if you like the podcast, do us a favor, follow the show, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.